We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. Today we're talking food, what it says about not only our appetite and society's tastes, but also how it can embody our politics too. Ravinder Bogal is the journalist, chef and restaurateur whose restaurant in London, Jaconi, blends Asian, African and Middle Eastern cuisines in what she calls cooking across borders. Her latest book is Comfort and Joy, Irresistible Pleasures from a Vegetarian Kitchen. Joining Ravinder in this discussion is Kavita Puri, the award-winning journalist and broadcaster whose book is Partition Voices, Untold British Stories. If you'd like to hear this episode ad-free and enjoy a full-length version, you can support Intelligence Squared's mission to foster honest debate and compelling conversation by heading to intelligencesquared.com slash membership or by subscribing to our podcast on Apple. Now let's join Kavita and Ravinder in conversation. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Squared event with Ravinder Bogle and tonight we will be exploring food and the stories it tells of our history, identity and culture and particularly the importance for immigrant communities. And we'll also be talking about the politics of food, its making and sharing and eating and what it means today. And I'm so happy to be in conversation with Ravinda, who is a renowned journalist, chef and restaurateur. Her debut restaurant, Jaconi, was ranked 56th in the UK by the National Restaurant Awards within seven months of opening, which is remarkable, and achieved a coveted place in the Michelin Guide in the same year. And she's written three books and most recently, Comfort and Joy, Irresistible Pleasures from a Vegetarian Kitchen. And they really are irresistible. It's been described by Mira Sayal as a revelation, inventive, 
bewitching and mouth-watering. She's a food columnist at the FT Weekend, for which she was shortlisted for Fortnum and Mason Award in 2023, and Guardian Feast and Contributing Editor at Harper's Bazaar. She's very busy, but Ravinda, welcome. Mm. Thank you, Kavita. Thank you for having me. So I just wondered if you could just tell us food and cooking. What does it mean to you? What does it evoke? I think food and cooking in kitchens have been for a long time my safe space. And I remember particularly when I came to this country when I was seven years old, the kitchen you know, in all the kind of mania of trying to settle into a new country and all that kind of, all the change that that brought with it, the kitchen seemed to be the place that felt safe, that felt like a place of quiet, tranquility, calm, and some sort of rootedness. And it was, it was also a portal where you felt you could kind of be in touch with home. We're, we're going to explore so many of those things that you've just talked about. But I think dal makhni, which is one of the wonderful recipes in, in uh, Comfort and Joy, and obviously I'm Punjabi, so are you. It pulls at the heart of, of, of any Punjabi. You describe it as a mouthful of memory and mourning for the homeland. And just, just to explain what it is about food, the act of eating that takes us back to a different time, a different place, and and is an anchor particularly for immigrant communities. Yeah, I think it, it is that. I think food evokes memory. It connects you to places and people. And, you know, when I think about the pining people have, immigrants particularly for home, it's it's food that helps them feel settled. You know, you can be far away from home and then if you eat something that feels like it evokes home, you suddenly feel lifted or uplifted. And and that's it. And I, I remember, and I, I know I talked to you about this, but in my last book, Jikoni, I the Jikoni cookbook, I, I wrote a story about guavas and having this memory of being a little girl. And when I'd first come here, you know, I come from this very lush tropical background, uh, you know, backdrop of Kenya, these blue, ever blue skies and colossal trees to suddenly being in a very kind of haggard, very urban London and being quite sickly because it was cold. It was November. I wasn't used to the weather and I was finding it difficult to settle in. And my mother tells me that one night I had seemed to be having a nightmare and been ill for quite a while. And when she came into my bedroom, I was sort of delirious with a fever and I kept telling her that I wanted to eat a guava and I was convinced I could smell guavas in the house. And, you know, she was like, this is England, you don't get guavas. And I was like, no, because when you have a guava in the house, you can smell them. And we had a guava tree in my house in Kenya and, you know, it's just a lovely thing. And anyway, a, f a few days later, and I'd been sort of ill for two to three weeks, my father went out and got some, you know, out of season, very expensive, underripe guavas from somewhere. And as soon as they ripened, I ate one and I was suddenly better. So I think it was just homesickness that I was suffering from more than anything else. So food is, it really does connect you to, to the sense of home. And do you remember what the taste of that guava was like, even though it was unripe? Um, yeah. Do you, do you recall that? I mean, how old were you at the time? About seven. It was just, mm. it just felt reassuring. It felt like, 
joy, you know, feel full of joy, just that flavor of home. You know, I remember longing for many things. And I remember, you know, my grandmother on the phone, she was still in Kenya saying, oh, there are so many guavas. And maybe that's what set me off for this longing for guavas. But it suddenly felt like I was at home. It's funny you say that because I have a memory of my dad. Um, I must have been, maybe I was around the same age, actually. And he was walking in. He'd just come off the plane from India. And he, he had a crate of, of mangoes, you know, that the mangoes that are really squashy, they taste totally yeah. different from man- mangoes here. And it was a time when you could bring food. And I remember thinking even at the time, what a strange thing to have brought over, but it's, it's, it's not really that strange, actually. It was that yeah. kind of connection to home. And I, I don't know what it was like when, when you came, um, but was it easy, for example, for your mum to buy spices to cook to cook food that you'd eaten in, in Kenya? Not really. I mean, we used to have to go all the way to, say, South Hall or Wembley to find those shops where we could get spices and things. But there were so many things you just couldn't get. So then it was about ad- adaptation. So and that's, I think, where cuisine becomes very interesting then, because you you kind of as immigrants you know, when you come over to a new new nation, things can seem or feel very barren to begin with. And you have this ache and longing for the old country. And then as you begin to settle into your new nation and, and find home, that's when you start to overlay or adapt your recipes. So you become very precious about your culinary heritage or your language or whatever it is. But then it slightly starts to evolve because you are weaving in all the you know, new, the traditions or the, the, the new heritage in your new nation. And I think by doing that, you're creating a completely new cuisine. And I think that's what immigrant food is. But isn't it also about survival? Absolutely. Adapting, survival. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was telling you earlier that, for example, we would have mango achar, you know, they were raw mangoes everywhere in Kenya and India, I imagine, and they'd be sort of dried out and then pickled. And of course, they were very difficult to get here, but Bramley apples, British Bramley apples, so plentiful, and they have the same sharpness as a raw mango. And actually, if you salt them, they have a similar texture too. So my mum would make Bramley apple achar rather than mango achar. So much of of the immigrant experience is about loss and you talked about adaptation but when you adapt you're you're giving something else up and 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 that loss is that connection to the to the motherland whether it's the memory or the dress or the language history or or food why particularly for immigrant communities do you think cooking means so much that that link to the past which it is and it's it's a kind of celebration of that but do you think there's also fear about losing that connection and, and everything that that means I think definitely, but I think um, you will find a lot of immigrants that sort of turn to the kitchen. And I think part of that is that when you are trying to do something as, as huge as, you know, find sort of disentangle yourself from your old connections and, and, and find home in a new country, there is so many obstacles and so many difficulties that you face that actually mealtimes become very important. And I certainly think that was uh, true for me, that steady tick of mealtimes, you know, one meal after the other in a very chaotic time is a very reassuring thing. So I think the kitchen becomes a very safe place. 
Do you think that when you're growing up here, there is this pool of of the first generation who wants to hold on to to kind of the, the, the foods and um, the, the history and the connections of the past? And, and maybe when you were younger and you were going to school, you just wanted like a really ordinary packed lunchbox. You didn't. Oh God! You didn't want, yeah. you didn't want anything exotic. Yeah, and I think I remember that. I remember feeling the absolute sort of shame of opening up my lunchbox and, you know, the waft of garlic and cumin uh, from the things that my mom would uh, have packed me and just sort of closing my eyes and praying to God that I'd have a jam sandwich and a packet of hula hoops or something instead. But I think that's that's beginning to change as people are traveling and sort of more sort of adventurous with what they eat. I think that's changing. But certainly in my day, you know, it was kind of a lot of, oh, my God, the stench of your lunchbox and and the shame that was attached to it. But, yeah, thankfully, things are changing. And um, when did you have that realization that you wanted to well, you, you, you you didn't mind that the stench of your lunchbox when did you say, oh, I, I want to kind of delve deeper into this? I want to cook the foods that my mum's cooked, the food that I remember in Kenya. I mean, I think in in a way I was living a double life because at home I wanted all those things because I fe- felt that they connected me to home. But at school or, you know, through through my sort of young teenage life, I, you know, I wanted to be very British and have British traditions so, so it's difficult, but I think it was really in my 20s that I suddenly became very proud of where I had come from and, and my culture and my, you know, my history. And I think actually I realized then looking back that a lot of my experience as an immigrant had been cauterized, you know, because I, I was born in Kenya. I'm, I'm British. I have Indian heritage. I'm a Londoner and I'm also a product of, uh, you know, growing up in a very densely immigrant area and all those people who gave me that hospitality, whether it was our Turkish neighbors or our, you know, the, the sort of Chinese supermarket, all those little mini economies of, of supermarkets like Chinese and Turkish and Korean. And, you know, they'd all sort of helped bring me up in a way and had all influenced how I cooked, how I ate, all those things. And yet, I was, um, you know, the brown girl, the Indian girl, I was put into that box. And I think subconsciously when I, when I came up with the idea of Chikoni, my restaurant, I think subconsciously I was answering to that. I was saying you can be a multitude of identities and you can be, you know, you can, you can be, you can, yeah, you, they should be places that speak to everybody, no matter where you're from. And I think Jaconi does that. And I think my cooking does that. We, we say we cook without borders. And I think that, you know, borders are for politicians to wrangle with and they just, just don't belong in the kitchen. And, and so you, do you think that, that food can accommodate? I mean, your, your writing and your, your cookbooks absolutely are, are that, that they can accommodate this kind of really complex history. I mean, you yourself, your Punjabi heritage, you grew up in Kenya. You live in Britain. You love Italian tiramisu. That that actually food can, can accommodate all these very complex things in a way that real life can't, perhaps. I think so, and I think that we're we're as people. It's human nature. We're very good at othering people. We're very good at uh, seeing the stranger in other people or fear. And I think actually, when you sit down and you're eating someone's food, someone's cuisine. 
it, it kind of breaks down that barrier. You suddenly understand a part of who they are and it's very difficult then to fear them or think of them as the other. And I think food is a great medium for bringing people around the table and opening conversations. And, uh, you know, I think that's the beauty, especially when we see it at our restaurant, because because we cook so much across borders, it gives me so much joy when, you know, people from where we're in Maryland, so it's very international and people will come in from Lebanon or um, you know, Paris or Egypt, and they, everyone tends to say, oh, this tastes like something my grandmother used to cook or my mother used to cook. And for me, I feel a great sense of achievement when people can taste a flavor of home in the food that I'm cooking. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. It's so interesting you talk about borders and and it's something that you and I have, have talked about before that places like in in India or or Pakistan in in Punjab where our families originate from or Bengal um people might have different religions people may have fought with each other but the food barring religious kind of uh, rules it's it's the same and it's the same for other countries that now have artificial borders like Cyprus or it was Israel, Palestine. And, and actually, that's the thing is that you, you might be at war, but you're eating the same food. And that's a really hard thing to get your head around, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I, I met someone the other day who said to me that he lives in Britain now, but he went back to his father's farm, which is in Pakistan. 
And when the border came down, when partition happened, they were they were then in India, but the, the, their farm is right on the border. And he said he could not get his head around it because he said, I just saw this fence. And beyond the fence, he said, I saw men on tractors wearing turbans. And I was like, what's that? He's, you know, the, the person he was with said, oh, well, that's India. And it was right there, a stone throw. And, you know, he's looked at these people and were like, they're this, they look the same as us. You know, they're eating the same food. They have the same language, yet there's this border and it just feels wrong. And do you think there can be a kind of redemptive quality to, to food, to the, the idea of sharing, breaking of bread? Yeah, I, I do. I think food is a great healer. I think food is what brings people around the table and opens up conversations. I think it's really important that uh, people break bread together. Yeah, I just, I've seen it happen, you know, many, many uh, things. That, there, there's um, someone I really admire and I forget his name now, but he's Lebanese and he runs these sort of um, markets, food markets, where he gets women who are Muslim and Christian to and Jewish to come and cook together. And their food is like almost identical, but it's just women cooking together and people from all over, no matter what their religious persuasion, come and buy the food and enjoy it. And I think that is a really, really positive thing. Just bringing people together through food, it's a great medium. Can food be divisive though as well? I'm just, I'm just thinking, uh, you know, we're talking in very, you know, in glowing terms, but, but food must be a source of division I imagine as well. Well, I think people get very precious about who food belongs to. I've seen that, you know, where where things come from, you know, people sort of say, like, when you look at something like biryani, like you, people get into fisticuffs about who makes the best biryani. Is it from Hyderabad or is it from Kutch or is it from, you know, people get very possessive about food and who it belongs to and who cooks it best. I've seen that. And um yeah. How do you mean divisive? Well, I don't know. I mean, we, we I mean, for example, uh, for, I don't know what you think about appropriation and like chai latte, for example. Does that bother you? Or, or do you just think, actually, that's a great thing if everyone's drinking a, a chai. Might not be perfect, but or, or do you think we have to be quite purist about these things and respectful? No, I think it irritates me when things aren't properly named or, um, or credit isn't given to the communities that they come from or they're there's sort of um, whitewashing over that, you know, where things have come from. But I think food is one of those things actually that shouldn't be hoarded. You know, it's like Christmas, you know, Christmas, no matter what your religious persuasion, you all take days off, you um, might have your own version of Christmas dinner, you will have feel slightly sort of festive and, you know, get friends and family around a table. But that doesn't mean you're Christian. And I think in the same way, I think, in fact, all festivals and food should not be hoarded. They're there to be shared. And also, you know, where do you draw the line? Because you have to really understand the history of food and how it travels and where it came from before you can claim it as yours and just yours. Mm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your your journey. And we talked a little bit about your, your mother cooking. And then when you, when you were at school, you wanted kind of food like everyone else. But 
when did you start cooking and, and what was that like? Was it, was it your mother that first introduced you to cooking? It was. So I grew up in, in Kenya, like I said, I was born in Nairobi and we lived in an extended family. So there was never, you know, less than 15 people for lunch or dinner, maybe 25 on most days. And it was like growing up in an, uh, in a Jane Austen novel. We're four girls and my mother had this very Victorian attitude that her girls must learn to, you know, well, must learn this sort of cult of domesticity, join it. And, you know, I'd seen all the women sort of cook, so all these things. And that's what we were told that we should do. And so I remember being aged five and being kind of hoiked off my tricycle and dragged kicking and screaming into the kitchen. And at that time, I, I, I felt it was very, really unfair because all the boys were outside playing and the girls were stuck in the kitchen, you know, peeling potatoes and podding peas and all sorts of things. But actually, it was my grandfather who really made me fall in love with food. And, you know, he was a man who had come from India in the 1940s. He'd run away, landed up in, in Bombay and got on a migrant ship that was sailing to, to Kenya. And he, he and his brother, I think they traveled for something like 26 days. And, you know, I can't Im imagine the hardships that they must have seen, but the ship landed up back in Bombay because something had gone wrong with it and he lost everything but he was so brave that a month later he set sail again and this time on his own because his brother refused to go with him and he ended up in Mombasa and this is Kenya in the 1940s when it was still a British colony so there were racial divides, there were language barriers you know, all sorts of difficulties, alienation, you know, he didn't have very much money. And yet he still found time to fall really deeply in love with this incredible alluvial red soil, this very volcanic soil that is so benevolent. And he just completely fell in love with the land and the soil and had almost a sort of religious, you know, relationship with the soil. And everything that came out of it, he was so grateful for. And I think I spent so much time on his allotment with him that it sort of made me fall in love with food and also that act of sort of sharing. And then being a religious, a fairly religious Sikh, one of the tenets of Sikhism was, uh, is to do seva, which is community service. So I remember my grandfather telling me very early on that you know, we all have to do save our community service. And the easiest way to do it is simply by feeding people. And I think something about that really spoke to my soul. So I think that's where my love of cooking and hospitality comes from. And on your grandfather's allotment, what was he growing? Oh, gosh, so many things. So everything from beautiful tomatoes that were, you know, the Italians say the tomatoes are really good. These are like sort of buxom and delicious and then green chickpeas, passion fruits, all types of spinach, herbs. You know, he just always seemed to be knee deep in, in, you know, uh, sort of almost like a prayer position in soil and greenery. And, um, it, it was just such a joy to know this kind of humanity behind the food that was being grown, that the person who, who had, uh, planted the seed and who'd worked on it. And I think, 
that's something that I've become very conscious of, um, particularly having traveled and, and sort of been on a lot of farms all around the world. You, you forget, I think we, we become so disassociated in our kind of grand urbanization of, um, the, the, you know, toil that goes into produce and the sacrifice people make. And I think, and I say this to my team all the time, that we all have to remember that every time we sit down to a meal, yes, there's a food chain, but there is a chain of humanity behind everything we eat. And there is an invisible humanity present at our table every time we eat. And if we're wasting and if we're, you know, not appreciating what's on our plate, we're sort of disrespecting the humanity behind the food. Did he grow guava? He did. There was a guava tree. There was a guava tree and there was a, there was a Java plum tree, which I, I've never seen them here. They're called Jamans. And they, I just remember, um, climbing the tree. And these things are like, they, they're almost like a plum, but so, or like a cross between a plum and a grape. They're so sweet and saturated with sugar that the tree would be covered in ants and these ants would sort of perish you know, covered in sugary solution on, on the branches of the trees that are just drunk and dead, uh, eating these, uh, these Java plums. Absolutely delicious. I'm not surprised you miss them so much because you were thinking of your grandfather, I imagine. Yeah, absolutely. I think even now we, we work with a, a biodynamic farm called Waltham Place, which is just about 50 minutes down the road from the restaurant. And every time I go there, it's, it's idenic and it really reminds me of that like lovely time being in nature with my grandfather. Was it unusual for a man to have an allotment and to be so hands on in, in growing fruit and vegetables in those days? No, not really. And I think he'd come from Punjab. So, you know, Punjab was like the kind of breadbasket of India and, uh, fa- you know, farming was something people just did. And I think for him, it was his, uh, you know, like the kitchen was for me, this kind of place of quiet luxury and peace and tranquility. The allotment was that for him. And do you, do you remember what your first, um, what you cooked with your mother, that very first cooking experience? I do actually. And I think uh, it was two things. So I think like many people, my first foray into um, cookery was baking. And uh, she used to make these nankatais, which, uh, you know, we have a lot in India, but actually they have their origins in Iran. And they're like a little shortbread, you know, cookie. And my job was to take the tip of a knife and put a cross in the middle of each one and then go around with a little matchstick that was dipped in red dye and put a little dot between in the center of each cross. And it always used to remind me of a bindi caught up in a frown. And, um, and so I remember that. And then I do remember podding peas, sacks and sacks of peas. You know, I think it must have been 10 kilo sacks of peas. And I just used to have to sit there on a red plastic stool, podding them into a, a little bucket to be ground down to made into, uh, to be made into koftas. And so, did you learn cookery from your mother or, or was it something that interested you? And then, and then you went away to, to kind of find your, your own voice, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, I learned to cook from women. And I think that's, I've really been very interested in maternal cookery and representing maternal cookery on the London restaurant scene. I just don't think 
it was it was done, you know, up until very recently. So I learned to cook just from all these incredible women in kitchens, their sort of wisdom. And I remember being sort of very reluctant at the beginning because I just, I was a kid, I just wanted to be playing outside. But actually, I, I quickly learned that firstly, the kitchen was full of treats. You know, you kind of got the cook's treats. Uh, the kitchen was also a place for gossip. So you heard, you know, snippets of things that maybe you shouldn't be hearing as a kid. But it was just incredible because these women cooked in such an intuitive way. They knew exactly which pod or which spice to put into a giant pot next. And you learn almost through osmosis. It was like an inheritance that at the t- time I couldn't see, but now I'm very grateful for. And, you know, I think that my nose became attuned almost like a bloodhound to the scent of spices cooking. And even now I can be 10 paces outside my restaurant. And if someone is burning a spice in the kitchen, I, I know I can smell it and I will, I'll be down those stairs in seconds. You, you talked about being that young child on the bike and being told to come in and, and, and help in the, in the kitchen. Do you think that the preserve of, of the kitchen, particularly in say Punjabi families, uh, Indian families, is, is still the women. Do you think things are changing? I think things are beginning to change, but I, I mean, I see more boys cooking now, but I think boys still cook in a very different way. They cook because it's a hobby or they cook because they want to show off or they want to play around. But women sort of, it's it's kind of the everyday nurturing, nourishing, you know, feeding people. It's it's a very different thing. So yeah, I, I think ultimately it's still the women who do the feeding. You you didn't start off being uh, wanting to be a chef and and restaurateur. You you started off as a as a as a, as a journalist specialising in in beauty. What 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 was that pull for you? So I think I had always cooked. So I think, you know, for, for me, the kitchen, you know, when, when you hear about Virginia Woolf, you know, talking about a room of her own, because life was so chaotic as an immigrant and that settling in, for me, the kitchen was that room for me. You know, it's where I felt most comfortable. It's where I felt safe. It's where I felt that I had quiet and time to sort of think. So I'd always cooked. I'd always returned to the kitchen, no matter what I was doing. It's what connected me to home and made me feel safe. So I continued cooking and I went into journalism and I'd never been told that I could, I could be a chef. And, you know, my, my mother had told me, you know, very distinctly that I would cook for my husband and children and that would be it. And, but I remember being 18 years old and I was working at Selfridges. I I was a weekend uh, beauty counter girl and um, Nigella Lawson's How to Eat had just come out. And I remember buying a copy of it and reading it on the long train journeys home. And it really did feel like someone had opened a window and light and air had suddenly come in. And I just remember being compelled, not only by her recipes and how delicious they were, but also how gorgeous and voluptuous her writing was. And I think that's kind of where inspiration first struck, but it still was very subconscious because I I had had no formal training as as a chef. So I just sort of put it to the back of my mind. But I think subconsciously, I I dreamt about a career in food. I just didn't know how I was going to do it. 
And then it, it sort of, the opportunity turned up and here we are. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. This episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. If you'd like to enjoy a full-length version, sign up to become a member. We'd also love to hear your feedback on what you think we should be talking about next. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcast at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.